Welcome to the White House. This ceremony and the treaty we're signing today are both excellent examples of the rewards of patience. That was 1987, when a Republican president, Ronald Reagan, was announcing the signing of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or INF Treaty, with the Soviet Union. It was the first nuclear arms control agreement to eliminate an entire class of weapon, which in this case meant ground-launch missiles that can travel between 500 and 5,500 kilometers. Here's President Reagan explaining how many weapons were being eliminated. On the Soviet side, over 1,500 deployed warheads will be removed, and all ground-launched intermediate-range missiles, including the SS-20s, will be destroyed. On our side, our entire complement of Pershing II and ground-launched cruise missiles with some 400 deployed warheads, will all be destroyed. This was a turning point in the history of nuclear arms control. Every successive U.S. president took major steps to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in American national security strategy, starting with George H.W. Bush. We can now take steps to make the world a less dangerous place than ever before in the nuclear age. I am announcing today a series of sweeping initiatives affecting every aspect of our nuclear forces on land, on ships, and on aircraft. The first President Bush eliminated nearly all of our non-strategic or tactical nuclear weapons. These are nuclear weapons whose sole purpose is meant for the battlefield. Believe it or not, we used to have nuclear landmines, artillery shells, depth charges, and more. President Bush also signed the Strategic Arms Reductions Treaty, or START Treaty, with Russia, which set a cap of deployed strategic nuclear weapons on each side at a greatly lower number than during the Cold War. Then President Clinton took office. He further reduced the nuclear stockpile, and... Today in New York, the United Nations General Assembly voted overwhelmingly to adopt the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty and open it for signature later this month. On behalf of the American people, I will have the honor to sign this historic treaty. With this treaty, we were on the verge of realizing a decades-old dream that no nuclear weapons will be detonated anywhere on the face of the earth. And President George W. Bush. President Putin and I have signed a treaty that will substantially reduce our nuclear, strategic nuclear warhead arsenals to the range of 1,700 to 2,200, the lowest level in decades. This treaty liquidates the Cold War legacy of nuclear hostility between our countries. During President George W. Bush's tenure, the U.S. nuclear stockpile was further cut in half. President Obama made nuclear arms control a priority of his administration as well. And in 2010... I just concluded a productive phone call with President Medvedev, and I'm pleased to announce that after a year of intense negotiations, the United States and Russia have agreed to the most comprehensive arms control agreement in nearly two decades. That treaty, known as New START, further reduced the number of deployed strategic nuclear weapons between the United States and Russia. In fact, it's still in effect, with wide support from the military and intelligence communities, as well as bipartisan lawmakers. President Obama also further reduced the nuclear stockpile to the numbers we have today, which is about 4,000 active nuclear weapons. But now, President Trump is changing course. His recently released nuclear policy document actually calls for new nuclear capabilities and would clearly increase American reliance on nuclear weapons, breaking a decades-old bipartisan consensus. Coming up, we'll have all the details on the new Trump nuclear plan, 
with three nuclear experts. This is Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation in Washington, D.C. I'm James McKeon, a policy analyst here at the Center. And today, we're talking about the Trump administration's just-released NPR. No, not National Public Radio, but the Nuclear Posture Review. Though it can be a bit tricky when NPR is talking about the NPR. But I digress. Here's the deal. Starting with President Clinton, each administration has released a nuclear posture review relatively early on in their administration to outline its nuclear policies going forward. President Clinton's came in 1994, President Bush in 2002, and President Obama in 2010. Now we have the President Trump iteration, and, well, let's just say that this one is quite unique. We'll begin with the meat of the NPR, if you will, which is a call for two new nuclear capabilities. First, the administration is calling for modifying some of our submarine-launched ballistic missiles, or SLBMs, to have a, and I'm putting this in quotes, low-yield option. As we covered in our episode on the nuclear triad, these are missiles that are fired from submarines underwater into the air and through space until they reach a target. They go really fast, like 15,000 miles per hour fast at top speed. So a target halfway across the world can be struck in a matter of 25 or 30 minutes. Most of these submarine-launched missiles have a 100-kiloton nuclear weapon on top which is six times more powerful than the bomb used against Hiroshima that killed 100,000 people. Though the details are sparse, the quote, low-yield option on some of these missiles would likely be under 10 kilotons. On the surface, this may sound like a good idea. A quote, smaller nuclear weapon will kill fewer people, right? Well, yeah, maybe, but it'll still take the lives of an unimaginable amount of people, and it's still a nuclear weapon. And if a nuclear weapon is ever used in conflict, whoever we used it on would almost certainly use one back on us, and then we would use another one, and you can see where this is going. This is why President Reagan once said, A nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. But to be fair, most of the folks proposing new nuclear options don't actually want us to get into a nuclear war. They firmly believe that building, quote, smaller nuclear weapons will actually make us safer. Here's their logic. Russia has this policy, which Washington has nicknamed escalate to de-escalate, where they could use a, quote, small nuclear weapon in conflict, and if we have this, quote, small nuclear weapon, we'll make clear to Russia that if they ever use theirs, then we would use ours. So, hey, Russia, you have no advantage, which means you won't actually do it. But here's the problem. Actually, there's a lot more than one. To a large extent, the conversation about these low-yield nuclear weapons has been captured by a theory of how Russia plans to use its nuclear weapons that's called escalate to de-escalate. The idea is that Russia facing a losing conventional conflict would resort to nuclear weapons in order to try to get the United States to back down. So they escalate their way out of a failed conventional situation. Part of the difficulty is there's actually very little evidence in Russian strategic doctrine that they think this way. 
But it's become so compelling to so many people in Washington that it's really driven the need for these new low-yield weapons proposals. That's Dr. Adam Mount, a nuclear expert at the Federation of American Scientists. I think it's vanishingly unlikely a weapon like this is ever used. One of the reasons is if you fire a low-yield D5, one of these Trident missiles, you're revealing the position of the submarine and all of the other nuclear warheads that it has on board. So in firing this missile, you risk a larger percentage of your stockpile. The case for all low-yield weapons depends on one important and highly speculative assumption, which is that Russia cares whether there was a high-yield warhead that was detonated or a low-yield warhead that was detonated. In the first couple of minutes after a weapon goes off, quite frankly, I don't think that Russia would be able to tell the yield of the warhead. And even if they could, it's not clear to me that they would care about the yield of the warhead. The entire case for a low-yield warhead depends on the idea that Russia would limit its response because they perceived and cared that we had limited our strike. And I think that's wildly optimistic. So there are questions about the validity of escalate to de-escalate. And even if it is real, our response is basically, let's do the exact same thing. We have no idea how an adversary would know whether it's a, quote, small nuclear weapon and not a much larger one, because the same missile will carry both if these plans go through. And to use this, quote, small weapon, we'd be revealing for the first time in history the location of one of our nuclear-armed submarines, which has a ton of other nuclear weapons on board that an adversary could now destroy. Okay, let's move on to the next proposal. Oh, wait. There's actually more on this one, like the fact that the United States already has about 1,000 low-yield nuclear weapons. I'm going to repeat that. We already have 1,000 low-yield nuclear weapons. In fact, current plans call for upgrading all of these weapons to make them more reliable and accurate. So if you believe that, quote, small nuclear weapons deter Russia from using their own, quote, small nuclear weapons, 1,000 of these weapons aren't enough? By the way, that 1,000 number was conspicuously nowhere to be found in the NPR. Okay, actually on to the next proposal. The NPR also calls for a new nuclear sea-launched cruise missile, or SLCM, which nuclear wonks often pronounce as SLICM. This would likely have a low-yield option as well. Cruise missiles don't travel as fast or as far as ballistic missiles, but they're stealthier and may be able to avoid radar systems. We actually used to have a nuclear submarine-launched cruise missile, but... The Obama administration made a pretty sensible decision that the nuclear variant of the Tomahawk cruise missile wasn't really trusted, wasn't really real regarded, it had some concerns about performance, and they decided, let's just retire the thing. We don't need it. It doesn't really fit. We're not really using it. We don't need to pay for it because... It's not just about having a missile. It's about having the submarines that use it. They basically said, it's not getting us anything. It's costing a lot. Let's get rid of it. That's Anthony Weyer, a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and professional staff member on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's currently with the Friends Committee on National Legislation, or FCNL. If you're a Capitol Hill staffer or are just interested, FCNL puts out an excellent nuclear calendar covering all major upcoming events on nuclear weapons. It's definitely worth checking out. But back to the submarine-launched cruise missile. Though the Obama administration retired the Slickum, it was actually the George H.W. Bush administration that took the thing offline. 
It hadn't really been used since the Cold War. The idea to retire was, look, we already have and are upgrading a nuclear air-launched cruise missile. Why would we need a nuclear submarine-launched cruise missile, too? It's superfluous. This wasn't controversial. At all. So, what gives? Fast forward to now. Suddenly, it apparently is really important. Except when you read the document, you can't actually figure out what problem it is that it's actually supposed to solve that we have right now. There's kind of a lot of ghosts and kind of vapors hanging around that are pointed to monsters underneath the bed, but you can't actually figure out what it is it's supposed to do. To be generous, I think the argument is that the Russians, through their development of a system that does violate the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, this is the treaty that limits the United States and Russia from having weapons basically that are in Europe that are designed just to hit each other in Europe and not reach from the United States to Russia or from Russia to the United States, shorter ranges. Russia's violating that system, so there's some argument that we need a system to defeat that. Anthony's hitting on the main point here, which is that advocates of a new Slickum will argue that it's absolutely necessary because Russia is violating the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or INF Treaty. I talked about this earlier, so I'll be brief. The INF Treaty was signed in the late 1980s by President Reagan and then-Soviet leader Gorbachev. It's a monumental nuclear arms control treaty because it bans an entire class of weapon, any ground-launch missiles that can travel between 500 and 5,500 kilometers. But unfortunately, various U.S. intelligence assessments now show that Russia is actively violating the treaty by testing and deploying a ground-launch cruise missile system. Before I go any further, I just want to be very clear about our position on this. It is absolutely unacceptable that Russia is violating the INF Treaty. It needs to be corrected immediately. But we also think that diplomacy should play the prime role here. A bit of realism is needed right now. If the Trump administration's proposals come to fruition, there will be five, I repeat five, options to respond to the deployment. First, the new low-yield option on some submarine-launched ballistic missiles we already talked about. Second, this submarine-launched cruise missile. Third, the new stealthy air-launched cruise missile, called the Long Range Standoff Weapon, or LRSO, that's going to be put on a new stealthy strategic bomber. Fourth, a new ground-launched cruise missile that Congress is pushing, that, if tested or deployed, would put us in violation of the treaty ourselves. And fifth, Upgraded nuclear gravity bombs that are deployed on six NATO bases in five European countries. Do we really need five options? But that's not all. It's probably going to cost a lot of money because every new system costs a lot of money to build. Then you've got to find submarines that you're going to put it on. Then you've got to find crews who will be trained to operate the things safely. It creates all these extra logistical challenges for the Navy to host this. And again, the document doesn't really explain why. What is it supposed to do that we aren't able to do elsewhere? If the theory is somehow that the risk is that Russia will intimidate Europe into abandoning the alliance with the United States because Russia could threaten Europe with nuclear annihilation without threatening reprisal back from the United States, because in essence, the United States, in the old jargon, wouldn't trade Chicago and Washington for Paris and Berlin. We already have submarine launch, submarine launch missiles all around the ocean that are available to launch at Russia if we want to defend Europe from an attack. 
I don't understand how a new submarine launch missile, just because it flies along on a level pathway rather than flying along at a up and down ballistic trajectory, is suddenly a magical wand that the thing we had before doesn't work at all. It just doesn't add up to me. The bottom line is Congress, before it forks over a lot of your money, a lot of taxpayer monies to pay for this, that's the thing we do know is that money will come out of your pockets and go into this system if you build it. I would like Congress to ask a lot more questions. The old saying is explain it to me like I'm a four-year-old because I couldn't explain this to my four-year-old right now. So there you have it. Two new nuclear capabilities. That's it for the NPR folks. Oh, but there's more. Since two new nuclear capabilities apparently aren't enough, the NPR also calls for retaining the B-83, the largest nuclear weapon in the U.S. arsenal. By large, I mean really, really large. Its maximum yield is 1.2 megatons, which is 1,200 kilotons, or about 75 times more powerful than the bomb used against Hiroshima. The B-83 was set to be retired, but the NPR indefinitely delays the retirement with no rationale whatsoever. And still, that's not everything. The document also pretty radically shifts U.S. commitments on when we won't use nuclear weapons. We call these negative security assurances. Simplistically, what we mean by that is if you, country X, don't have nuclear weapons and are verifiably not working toward getting nuclear weapons, we won't use or threaten to use a nuclear weapon against you. During the Obama administration, there was one caveat to this policy, that the United States reserves the right to use nuclear weapons against one of these countries in response to a strategic biological weapons attack. Fast forward to now, and... The Trump administration mimicked a lot of the words in the Obama administration nuclear posture review, in fact, almost word for word, about not using or threatening to use nuclear weapons on countries in compliance with their nonproliferation obligations, and then carved out a huge loophole that you could drive a nuclear weapon through, saying that we would potentially reserve the right to withdraw these negative security assurances in the event of major changes in the threat environment and possibly use nuclear weapons in response to biological chemical, and large-scale conventional attacks, but also extending it out to potential threats, attacks against civilians, and attacks on infrastructure. It's very vague in describing what infrastructure really means. The general thinking is it means cyber. Now, that is alarming, that we are opening the door to use a nuclear response to a cyber attack. That's Alexandra Bell, our senior policy director and a former senior advisor at the State Department to the Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. Essentially, the Trump NPR is so ambiguous about when the United States could use nuclear weapons that we're left guessing the specific scenarios. This is extremely destabilizing internationally and can lead to serious miscalculations. And then there are the lines about explosive nuclear testing. If you can recall one of the clips from the beginning of this episode, President Clinton signed the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, or CTBT, in 1996. If fully implemented, this would ban explosive nuclear weapons tests around the world. President Clinton needed the advice and consent of the Senate to ratify the treaty. I'll let Alex explain the history. In 1999, his administration made an attempt to get 
the CTBG ratified by the U.S. Senate. Unfortunately, the Senate failed to give its advice and consent to the treaty at the time. Their two major concerns were whether or not the treaty would be verifiable and whether or not we would potentially need to test weapons again. Uh, fast forward to the Obama administration, and the science had validated the idea that we no longer needed to test nuclear weapons. In fact, our weapons lab scientists have confirmed that we know more about our nuclear weapons now without exploding them through advanced computer mo- modeling and simulation. So we know more about nukes now than we did when we were exploding them. So that was no longer an issue. And the international monitoring system, that's the verification mechanism attached to the treaty, has gone from simple theory to a modern technological marvel capable of detecting any nuclear test, even at tiny yields, anywhere on Earth. The Obama administration supported ratification of the CTBT, as well as pushing into other countries to ratify the treaty so it can formally enter into force. The Trump administration, however, is now changing U.S. policy. The Trump administration has decided not to follow the technical advice of of scientists and experts and lab scientists and have stated that they no longer want to pursue ratification of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. On a good note, they did uh, say that they want to continue to support the verification mechanisms that are a part of the treaty. Uh, So they want the benefits of it without actually having to adhere to the legal obligations under it. There are a lot of things that scare me in this nuclear posture review but it's sort of the little things buried inside that, that should also be alarming people. And the Trump NPR carves out not only a caveat that we may need to return to nuclear testing in the event of technological reasons. That's always been sort of in the background. There's also mention of the need to possibly test again in the event of geopolitical challenges. There's no explanation of exactly what that means. It could be anything. To be very clear... We haven't explosively tested a nuclear weapon since the end of the Cold War, because, as Alex explained, we simply don't need to from a technical perspective. Supercomputing and other technological marvels have completely changed how we analyze nuclear weapons. If we begin explosive nuclear testing again, other nuclear weapon states following their own moratoriums will likely say, well, if they can test, why can't we? Which would lead to a cascade of explosive nuclear tests across the globe, that no one wants. This might sound insignificant, but citing, quote, geopolitical challenges as a rationale for potentially returning to explosive nuclear testing is a major shift in U.S. policy. What supposed geopolitical challenges would force us to explode nuclear weapons just for the sake of it are never defined. By the way, if we go down this route, we'd join North Korea as the only countries to conduct explosive nuclear weapon tests in the 21st century. Before we go, just a quick historical tidbit. I mentioned before that the George W. Bush administration made quite a bit of progress on nonproliferation and even drastically cut the U.S. nuclear arsenal. But the administration was also pushing for a new nuclear warhead, one that could penetrate theoretical targets deep underground. Never mind the fact that we already had a weapon, the B-61-11, that was designed to do this, at least in part. The proposal had the very masculine name of Robust Nuclear Earth Penetrator, or RNEP, often pronounced RNEP. The RNEP was viewed skeptically by lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. 
Congressman David Hobson, the Republican chair of the committee that would have funded the program, went on the record about it, saying, quote, We cannot advocate for nuclear nonproliferation around the globe while pursuing more usable nuclear weapons options here at home. In the end, bipartisan opposition killed the program. Then there was another attempt during the Bush administration to create new types of nuclear warheads. This went under the name of the Reliable Replacement Warhead, or RRW. Congress also killed it. I bring up this history because much of President Trump's plans won't come to fruition without Congress providing the funds. In the past, Congress has looked skeptically on any proposal for new nuclear capabilities. To say the least, that skepticism must remain. Lawmakers have a responsibility to ask tough questions about what we actually need, not just what a select few seem to want. There's a lot on the line here. Alex Bell says it best. As a former State Department employee, I think another thing that set off alarms for me was the idea that the United States is a passive actor, subject to the whims of other countries, that things are happening to us, so we have to invest in more nuclear weapons, so we have to defend ourselves. It's a break from the idea that the United States is both capable and has had the historical record of shaping the geostrategic environment, of leading countries away from an arms race, away from further proliferation. We have tools in our national security toolbox that are far more useful than nuclear weapons. If you enjoyed this episode of Nukes of Hazard, please consider giving us a rating on iTunes. And if you have any questions or comments, you can shoot us an email at podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at at nukes underscore of underscore hazard. Our Facebook page is www.facebook.com slash armscontrolcenter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon.